It's the end of the world as we know it, and I feel fine. That crazy starts with an earthquake, birds, snakes, and aeroplanes. Many fruits are not afraid. I have a machine, listen to yourself, the world, but it don't need something to your own head. Beat it up and I've seen got no sheets. The ladder from the platter with the fear fight down. I fire in a fire, Mr. Sixth Southern Gang, the government for hiring the combat site. But it wasn't coming in a hurry, the security beat it down your neck. Welcome to the Doom and Bloom Hour with medical preparedness experts, Dr. Bones and Nurse Amy. Your source for information on how to succeed if everything else fails. And now, your hosts, Dr. Bones and Nurse Amy. This is the hour of doom. And Bloom in Chicago. In Chicago, right. In Chicago, the Windy City. We are in the Windy City, and it is indeed windy and cold today. Not snowing, though. No, it was a little rainy, but it's not quite under freezing, so it was just a little mist of rain. A little mist. And there's snow on the ground. Oh, yeah. That's pretty awesome for us uh, Florida folk. (laughs) (laughs) I know everyone who lives up north who is living in snow or... Blizzard-type snow. They didn't actually have the blizzard-geddon that they were expecting. No, it wasn't quite as bad. Do, do you know that I heard that the weather, actually, the people who were putting out the weather announcements mm-hmm. actually made it seem like it was going to be a lot worse than it was on purpose? Why would you say that? Because I, I saw it on the news. <laughs> <laughs> oh, oh, must be true. They actually <laughs> admitted that they knew that it was not going to be as severe or, or dump as many inches as they predicted the day before. Well, that's interesting. So they're trying to, are they trying to make you more prepared, possibly? I, I absolutely by believe. By giving you a little fear in I, your heart? I totally <laughs> believe that they were motivating people to try and get in the mindset of, you might be stuck at home. You better get your supplies now because we're not coming to rescue you if there's something that happens because there's too much snow. So get your food, get your water, and get your medical supplies. Well, they're diabolical, but you know what? It's not That's a, a bad means, idea. <laughs> it's a means to an end, right? As they say, hey, friends and neighbors, welcome to the Doom and Bloom Survival Medicine Hour, a halcyon haven in a horrendous world. <laughs> I'm Joel Nemdi, also known as... How do I come up with these? I'm Joel Nemdi, also known as Dr. Bones of doomandbloom.net, where you'll find over 900 posts, videos, and podcasts on medical preparedness for any disaster. Any disaster. And okay. I am Amy Alton, an advanced registered nurse practitioner and a certified nurse midwife. That's right. And our mission is to put a medically prepared person in every family for any disaster We are the courageous couple, and we are here to help you keep it together, even if everything else falls apart. Friends and neighbors, (laughs) have you been injured in an accident? 
with a lounging lizard. Our attorney says, don't call me, call Dr. Bones and Ursini. And listen to this. Yes, listen to this for the 1,000th time. <laughs> you have to get a recording of this. No, All I like, right. I, I'm you a, like me doing it You know it what live. it is? I'm, I'm like the guy at a NASCAR races. I'm, I'm waiting for an accident. You're going to want to see... See if you mess it up. (laughs) Well, I'll do my best not to. All information given in opinions voice on Dr. Bones and Nurse Amy's Survival Medicine Hour are for entertainment purposes only and do not represent medical advice for anything other than post-apocalyptic settings. No contract or provider-patient relationship exists or is implied between the hosts and listeners. Dr. Bones and Nurse Amy strongly urge their audience to seek modern and standard medical care whenever and wherever it is available. That's right, but what are you going to do when the ambulance isn't just around the corner? In a major disaster, you might be the end of the line when it comes to your family's health. So use some of those neurons in your noodle and learn what to do for injuries and illness in times of trouble. That proves that there is a neuron or two left in that noodle (laughs) and a great way to display your intelligence and common sense in your noodle would be to get some supplies and a medical kit. And what better place to get it than Nurse Amy's entire line of often imitated, never equaled medical kits at store.doomandbloom.net. They're there to help you handle medical issues if things go south, and they're designed by a real doctor and advanced registered nurse practitioner. How about that? Compare them. You actually said advanced registered nurse practitioner instead of just nurse. Nurse, that's right. Thank you. (laughs) Well, your kits are so good. I challenge anybody out there, compare them for contents, cost, quality, everything. With anybody else's stuff, you got to agree that Nurse Amy is the bomb. The bomb, B-O-M-B. Hey, got some pearls of wisdom in your oyster? I'll bet you do. And we learn as much from you clearly, as you do from us, probably more, much more. So connect with us. It is easy, schmeasy, peasy. Here's a lovely nurse, Amy, to tell you how. Absolutely. You can contact us by email at drbones, that's plural, podcast, which is what you're listening to, p-o-d-c-a-s-t at aol.com. Find us on Facebook at our group, Survival Medicine, Dr. Bones, and Nurse Amy. We have a couple of Facebook pages, Doom and Bloom and Dr. Bones and Nursing Me Show. You can follow those. Also on Twitter at Prepper Show. And don't forget our YouTube channel at DR Bones Nurse Amy. And, and, our, <laughs> oh, and our other podcast, American Survival Radio, all about current events with a little twist, opinions, honest opinions. We're going to get you with those honest opinions. Politics. Don't That's listen <laughs> if you don't like politics, please. <laughs> now broadcast from a whip. Of course, the help of Genesis Communications Network on KPJC, Relevant News Talk Radio out of Salem, Oregon, the voice of Lubbock, Texas, KRFE, and now now. KFAR out of Fairbanks, Alaska. 660 AM. So they've just added us to their lineup, and thank you so much. (laughs) And by the way, guys, you do us a tremendous favor if you follow our Twitter, our Facebook, YouTube, and other social media outlets not all of them necessarily but do us follow us on one of them geez louise (laughs) hey and don't forget to see us when we travel the country spreading the good news of disaster medical preparedness indeed right now we are in the great midwest just north of chicago or in chicago right now i'm looking at lake michigan right now we're in chicago right now yes we are that's right at the rk prepper show survival expo this weekend march 
16th to 17th. Yes. 16th, 17th? No. 17th, 18th. Nope. Today's the 17th. Uh Uh-oh. 18th, 19th. Boy, am I You are two days. In fact, today is... St. Patty's Day. That's right. Happy St. Patrick's Day. That's see right. the color of my jacket yes, here? Yes, your jacket, green. which you need a jacket in this weather, is green. Oh, boy, so do you. Good for We've you. Got You've got some Irish you. in you. Yeah, I'm half Irish. That's right. I need something. Yeah, maybe a, <laughs> a shamrock or something. <laughs> oh, we'll get you something. You know, they dyed the, the little river here that runs through Chicago green last Saturday. Bright last Saturday. green, apparently. Oh, uh-huh. So it, there's a there's supposedly still a little tint of green left. We'll it did look a look little green. I walked by and I said, oh, "That's a pretty crazy water." Well, now I know <laughs> that it was actually <laughs> green dye. Yeah. <laughs> well, you know, they wanted to celebrate it's on a, on a weekend because guess what happened Saturday night? Everyone oh. got drunk. <laughs> yep. <laughs> big trouble. Big trouble. Watch I it. wasn't here, but. I heard. <laughs> Don't drink and drive, you guys. Out it was there. it was the party party <laughs> of the weekend. So yes, the show is in Gray's Lake. It is the RK Prepper Show. And it's going on Gray's Lake today is, and tomorrow. No, Saturday. Well, we today were, and tomorrow this show. Uh, yeah, but some people Saturday. listen to this oh, on Friday. Right. Okay. On Prepper Broadcasting. It airs. March 18th and 19th, 2017, 17, just in folks. case you're listening to this a year from now. <laughs> and uh, we're going to be doing a free lecture on survival medicine. We're going to have our awesome wound care suture stapling class, which is sold out incredibly. But, folks, you can come out and watch. That's right, yeah. the the Anything that we do, even if it's hands-on, uh, the lecture part of it is always free for anybody to watch. Absolutely. So, you know, We're just interested in spreading education. I'm psyched to be up here. This is the first prepper show we have been. I think this is the most north. Is this the most north we've been? If we, oh no, Washington no. Yeah. is a little higher. Yes, yeah, Seattle. Yeah, <laughs> but anyway, well, but it's the first to... prepper show though, because yeah. that's the Mother Earth News event. So I think this is the m- most northern prepper show that we've been to. That we've been to. Yeah, absolutely. That's right. So we're going to also have our entire line of medical kits here. So if you want to take a look at those or just come by and say hi. Please hey, come say you hi. Know, Gray's Lake this weekend. Oh, you know, we had someone uh, when we were in New Orleans area near Baton Rouge. Uh-huh. Between that, it was a small town, Gonzales. Someone, remember, drove from Michigan. Oh, yeah. All the way down. There were two, a husband and wife, paramedics, and they had a little girl. Yeah. She was so cute. Very I think cute. she was like eight months old. Absolutely adorable. Well, why did they drive down there? Because we're here in Chicago. They That's didn't much real, closer. They didn't realize. Oh no, <laughs> the show. But you know what? They said they're going to come to this show too. All right, they're well, going nice to drive. See them. They I remember them. A couple so it'd be hours. Nice to see them. Wow, how Isn't about that? Hilarious. That? Oh, but anyway, so if you live nearby, please come out and say hello. We'd love to meet you guys. So let's see. Last time we talked about uh, tourniquets and uh, stopping bleeding, and I not I'm not sure if I mentioned that you can improvise a tourniquet, and you could use anything like a bandana. You, of course, the, the classic one you see in movies is to use a belt. Uh, that is a little harder to believe that it, it may work, but it may not. You well, have to just continually that, hold tension. The on problem it. is you, know, you can't let go. You can't because uh, yeah. there's no way to secure it as tight as it needs to be. It's really going to have to be human pulling yes. that maintain right. yeah and so, so you can't go to the next your casualty hands, right your hands are going to be tied up on that person that's true but however, it, holding the tourniquet right now there is a way that you can 
uh, sort of makeshift a tourniquet, and that is with a bandana mm -hmm. and uh, a stick. Now, the bandana should be wrapped in a, or some other wide strip of cloth. Wrap it around so that it's about um, an inch and a half, two inches, probably two inches. That's in really important. Thickness. That width is really important because if it's too narrow, let's say the look of a cord or a paracord, it's it may cause some actual tissue damage and nerve da damage. Yes. And and basically just cut into the skin. Yeah, could cut right So you right need that width for better compression. Exactly. It's That's why a bungee, really important. bungee cord by itself not you know, would not a good, be a good I I idea. idea. Or a piano wire, for example. Oh, my that gosh, honey. terrible. Yeah. <laughs> That's like a horror movie. All right. Well, what you do is you, you wrap the bandana around the, uh, let's say, bleeding from the arm, upper arm, high and tight. And what you do is you you uh, tie a knot in it, and then you put a pen or a stick or anything else above that's that relatively sturdy above the first knot, tie a knot over that, and then start twisting until you get He's demonstrating the pressure. on me, folks, by the way. <laughs> not not this for real. this was only video. Yes. <laughs> it helps me think. Helps me think. It's okay. I understand. So, And then tie another knot on top of that to secure it. And there you have a, an improvised tourniquet. Now, of course, it's less effective than the commercial models. We Absolutely. talked about the uh, cat tourniquet, the, the soft tea tourniquet, which we have in a lot of our kits, the SWAT tourniquet, which we have in a lot of our kits as well, and uh, the bandana and a stick, probably less effective than the commercial models, but it may be all you have. Now, you mentioned high and tight. Did you want to mention that only when somebody's under fire yes. to place that actually, high and tight? You're right, but high, high and tight is actually considered to be a, a reasonable thing to do, especially in in situations when you're under fire or situations where you can't expose the wound and see exactly, and see exactly the where it, what's bleeding. So you got to go above as high and tight on the extremity as possible and then later on move it downward when you are out of a hostile right. situation. as soon as possible. And the the height above the wound should be about two to three inches. Normally, yes. Yes. Absolutely. That's where you want to put it as soon as you can. Now, it's important to realize that while a tourniquet stops bleeding in a torn vessel, it also stops circulation from intact arteries and veins. So you have to realize that that's an issue. Of course, tourniquets are very painful, too. If it's not painful, you're not doing it right. And uh, prolonged use can cause your patient to lose a limb, of course, save a life, you know, lose a limb. If I had to pick between the two, I'd save the life. But in times of trouble, well, you know, it could be the same thing. So you have to realize that it does take uh, maybe an hour or two with the tourniquet in place to start causing problems. So make sure, especially if there is help coming to uh, place a some kind of marker as to when the tourniquet was placed so people know. Does it about, make that? Right. Exactly. At, at the two-hour point, you definitely need to reassess the wound for bleeding. Now, what what um, they call that in the tactical um, casualty care... Combat um, casualty care guidelines. Thank you. Um, is transition. And what you're doing is you're converting from a tourniquet to either just a pressure dressing or a hemostatic like Celox or Quick Clot and a pressure dressing. So you want to do that as soon as possible. Sometimes that, that is 
when they're at the medical facility or sometimes it's during transportation, but you need to get that tourniquet off, if possible, within two hours. Right. If you can convert it to the hemostatic or hemo—excuse me, pressure dressing and hemostatic and pressure dressing, it's sooner then you should do that. Then that would be great. In a survival situation, I would do it once I got that person out of a hostile encounter and into an area where the bulk of my medical supplies are. And so in a more controlled setting sure. like that, it would make sense to go ahead and do that. Or if they're going to a medical facility, please let them deal with that. Yes, absolutely. If they're go- going to be there, help coming, they're going to be there within them do two hours because a lot of times they're just going to do that in the surgical suite and not even in the emergency room. They're going to let the surgeon who is right there with all the crew and all the equipment take that tourniquet off. So if you're going to have them there within two hours, leave it on. Don't touch it. Absolutely. Now, Amy just mentioned using a hemostatic agent, a blood clotting agent in the wound, and maybe a pressure dressing, or I think both are a pretty good idea. Yeah, both is better. I think so. (laughs) Uh, And uh, the word hemostasis is the medical term for the control of bleeding. So once you're comfortable the major bleeding is abated, you're you're going to want to reevaluate the wound, and you're going to want to place that... uh, hemostatic agent in there many times it comes in a gauze that's impregnated with the product which could be quick clot or could be sealox and you want to pack it into the area so there's some pressure and then cover it up uh, with again some pressure so that's something that's important to know and i think that uh, a major a major part of your medical supplies uh, or at least an important part of your medical supplies is to have some of those on. Oh, hand. absolutely. Things to deal with traumatic bleeding is super important. Uh, one thing with the hemostatics, the quick clot or the Celox, whether you're using the gauze, which you just mentioned, or these things do come in uh, powders or granules, you have to put pressure on those products for three minutes. Firm pressure. What you're trying to do is allow those products to have contact with the bleeding vessels so they can work. They work in two different ways, those two different products, but both of them require manual firm pressure inside the wound so they can work. It's it's really important. Before you put on that pressure dressing or pack gauze, just regular gauze above that in the wound to maintain it in the wound, you have to have held pressure. So then you can cover this wound with the Israeli bandage or some sort of compression dressing. There are a few different. There's also one called Olace, and then there's some other generic ones. Yeah. There are a number of ones. Now, there are various types of hemostatic agents. You mentioned two of them, Quick Clot and Sealox. These are indeed recommended by the uh, Tactical Combat Care Casualty Guidelines, Casualty Care Guidelines. That's TC3. I think we call it TC3 if I mention it again. So you know what that yeah, is. Yeah, I, I think and, it's a tongue twister because right. there's too many C's. <laughs> now, those are the two most popular. I think it also recommends Kaido Gauze is another brand. But Quick Clot and Celox are the ones you're going to see most likely to be available. Now, the, they are two different substances. And they're available, they they as you mentioned, in powder ways. or granule form. And they're in these impregnated Gauzes, dressings. Right. right. That And those are considered easier to handle in most situations. In some situations, you want to use the granules. We'll, we'll talk about that. So the procedure is simple. What you want to do 
is remove blood-soaked dressings. Now you, if you were an EMT or paramedic, you may have been told that you're just supposed to apply dressings on top. Now that's fine with normal dressings, but and if you're going if to you're, apply. And also if you're in an ambulance and you're a few minutes away from right. the emergency room. Right, right. I can understand that. Exactly. But in, in a survival setting, you want to remove them so you could see where the bleeding is coming from because that gauze has to be packed directly onto the bleeding vessel to, be, to have a significant uh, amount of effect and then apply pressure on top of that. So in other that, words, folks, so remove the blood-soaked dressings in this case you, and then apply the you hemostatic cannot agent. cannot put the hemostatic agent over blood-soaked gauze. Right, and it expect it to stop bleeding. It will not work. It, it has to have direct contact with the bleeding blood vessel. Right. Absolutely, 100%. You're not going... You may not see blood coming out for a while because you've packed so much gauze in there, but that doesn't mean it's not still coming out. Exactly. Now, let's talk about a little bit about each of these uh, products. Quick Clot is the one that most people know about. It was originally contained a volcanic mineral known as zeolite, which effectively clotted bleeding wounds, but also caused a reaction to cause some serious burdens on people. So as a result, the company took out the main ingredient, replaced it with another substance altogether that doesn't burn when it comes into contact with blood. So the current generation of quick clot is made from kaolin, a type of ingredient in clay, uh, and it used to be the original ingredient in kaopectate, which is a product to stop diarrhea. So that's sort of interesting. Now that doesn't contain obviously any animal, human, or botanical components like clay, or it comes from clay. And when you have contact between the kaolin in quick clot and blood, it immediately initiates the clotting process by activating something called factor 12, which is a major player in the clotting process. The powder or the impregnated gauze is applied and pressure placed on the wound itself directly on where the bleeding vessel would be for several minutes. Now, Quick Clot is FDA approved, it's widely available, has a shelf life of about uh, three to five years, I think. Is yes. It, is it five now? Yes. Well, anyhow, one, one negative though with Quick Clot is it does not absorb into the body as well, as well as some other products, and some believe can be very difficult to remove from the wound. Actually, I've always been told that by anybody who's ever dealt Absolutely. with it. Absolutely. It forms a cake-like product. There you go. Now, like if you, clumps, I think would be like the best way to to, to describe it. Right. However, sort of crumbly. Yeah. Now, if you use the gauze dressing, you'll be removing some of it by rem when you remove the gauze, right. which should be done within 24 hours, usually in these circumstances. If more than one dressing is required, just the one one quick clot dressing. Then, in that case, you can place the second quick clot dressing on top. Absolutely. So that in that circumstance, now. After the gauze is finally removed later on, you normally would flush the wound with an irrigation syringe. Absolutely, you've got you to clean of... up the wound. Exactly. Now let's talk about Cellox. Cellox is another popular hemostatic product, and it's composed of something called Kytosan, something that Kytogauze, which is the, the third product that you'll see, is also composed of. And that's an organic material that's processed from shrimp shells. And despite this, the manufacturers claim that even if you're allergic to seafood, it's okay to use it. Because it's a neutralized protein. Right. So they 
causes no allergic reactions. There you go. So when cellox, some people call it celox, comes in contact with blood, it bonds with it and forms a clot that appears sort of like a gel. Now, like quick clot, it also comes in these impregnated gauze dressings, but unlike quick clot, celox will cause effective clotting even in those on anticoagulants like heparin or coumadin. And I, I want to really emphasize this. It also allows clotting in people who take aspirin. And these days, there are a lot of groups of people who are recommended to take aspirin. Yes, that's true. Women I take it. are supposed to take it to prevent press, breast cancer. So there's 50% of the population. A lot of men take it for heart disease. So there are many reasons why people take aspirin or other stronger blood thinners. Folks also who have natural blood clotting factor disorders, right? that Celox would be better. Um, people who drink a lot of alcohol have thinner blood, need, should have Celox instead of quick clot. Um, another thing is if you take just a lot of Advil or ibuprofen, has similar effects to aspirin. So even though you might not be taking an aspirin a day for a preventative of some disease, you might be taking Advil or ibuprofen because you have back problems or joint problems or migraine headaches. So a, a lot of people take these ibuprofen and Advil products every day, so they're essentially thinning out their blood as if they were taking aspirin on a daily basis. And maybe even worse, because they might be taking pretty high doses of Advil or ibuprofen on a daily basis. So there's a lot of other reasons why I personally prefer the Celox to carry on you, because you just don't know to whom you may be applying this. Right. So you actually use Celox pretty much exclusively in your kits. Yes. Yes. For that reason. Yeah, well, it's an organic material, and what happens is it is gradually broken down by the body's natural enzymes. It's thought to be a little easier to remove or absorb. Thought than... to be a little easier. No, it is a little easier. <laughs> I've uh, played with that one, and it is like, it, it, it turns slimy on uh -huh. the gauze uh -huh. if it's in contact with water or blood, and um, the granules turn into almost like a a jello. If you think about jello powder and when you put that in water what happens? It gets slimy and a little bit thick and mm -hmm. when it firms up it's sort of jello. It's, it's a solid. It's the same kind of look. Absolutely. Now both Celox and Quicklot as I Quicklot I mentioned already is FDA approved. Celox is also FDA approved, tested by the US and your UK military in both Iraq and Afghanistan and these products as well as the increased and more uh, common use of tourniquets are thought to have saved 1,000 to 2,000 lives in those conflicts, at least so far. So this is, I have a story uh, from our speaking engagement in Hampton, Virginia. We have somebody who is a purchasing agent for the Navy, and he follows uh, some of our writings. And he told me about a story in which they actually they did an experiment. They trussed up a pig, uh, an adult pig, and they shot it with a 45 in its femoral artery, one of the main arteries in the legs, causing arterial bleeding. And so they used cellox and they applied it into that bleeding and applied direct pressure. 
and stop the bleeding. Now, in and of itself, that's not unusual, but what they did that was different in this case is they actually shot the pig in the other leg and took the dress, the used dressing out of the first dressing, put it in the second dressing, stopped the bleeding in the second dressing, and the bleeding in the first dressing didn't restart. So this is something that I thought was pretty impressive and it gave me more confidence in Cellox as opposed to Quick Clot. Uh, Quick Clot, however, I don't know if they did the same thing with Quick Clot. Quick Clot for the first wound certainly would work as well. Now another product is called Extat, and that's a syringe full of small sponges that expand in the body. Now this, since it's a syringe, it's meant to inject into small caliber, small diameter bullet wounds, let's say entry wounds that are bleeding. And that's and the thing about this is I've heard a lot of people ask me about this, a lot of people saying that it's the uh, you know bee's knees, but the truth of the matter is is that this is a prescription only item. It is a very expensive item. I think it's like 150 bucks a shot to use it. And it has 92 little sponges that are placed in the wound with the syringe that, that help apply pressure. And they guess what they have impregnated in them? They have cellox impregnated in them. Now, the problem with these sponges is that each one of these sponges must be removed. They are not things that absorb into the body. And because they don't absorb into the body, what happens, and you put them into a very small entry wound, let's say in somebody that was, that was shot, gut shot, or uh, someplace else, well, that means that the patient has to go to the operating room for an exploratory procedure to pick all of them out. Otherwise, those are foreign objects and they can cause the bowel obstructions, they can cause other, other things. So I've seen an interest on the part of the military of using this item and I think that with in certain situations it may be useful to use, but I think it's got for survival purposes limited potential. First off, it's really expensive, you're going to have to do more procedures, some of which you may not have experience with. Uh, if you do use it uh, before the patient uh, achieves a full recovery. And for that reason, I really think that it's sort of a big issue that maybe you shouldn't look towards this product. Now, there are other products that are probably coming out soon. I've heard of uh, foams and gels that seal bleeding areas, even in abdominal and chest wounds. And so I'm really looking forward to seeing these come on the market and actually uh, see them in actual field conditions. So we'll see what they do. Now they they may prove to be effective. You have to realize that hemostatic agents are not yet candidates as a first line of treatment in a bleeding per, in a bleeding patient in people with mild to moderate bleeding, direct pressure, elevating limb above the heart, packing with gauze, and in severe bleeding tourniquets. Those are probably should probably your first steps. Now, if these measures fail, then hemostatic agents should be employed and they may save a life. Do not hesitate to use them if you're having trouble stopping the bleed. Now, I want to talk a little bit about dressing the wound. Uh, in the early part of the process, regular bandages, not hemostatic bandages, but regular bandages that you do put in there, I'd mentioned that you should that you should not remove them 
because you may remove clots that are preventing further hemorrhage. These right. are just regular bandages. And, and that's if those worked. And right. you know what? In 80 to 90% of bleeding, regular bandages with firm pressure will stop the bleeding. Yes. Thankfully. And those you do not take out. So let's say that we've got the bleeding firmly under control. We've got pretty much a patient stable, but what you're going to, you still have a patient with a wound. So you have to eventually deal with that wound. You have to care for that wound. So you want to flush the wound aggressively with a 60 or 100 cc syringe. Uh, sterile water would be good. A 1 to 10 betadine solution would be good. Uh, you want to use gloves, of course. You don't want to be touching these with your bare hands unless you absolutely have to. Right. We're trying to prevent infection, folks. Exactly. Got to get, get as much of the bacteria and everything that's contaminated this wound out so you don't end up with a worse problem later on than what you started with and by the way the that flushing out it has, actually has a name it's called irrigation like you're irrigating a field or you're irrigating a wound so uh, you can you may have heard of cleaning wounds with alcohol or hydrogen peroxide and these are acceptable for a first cleaning if you have nothing else around but it's not good for later wound care and the reason why that is is that as your body is trying to heal this wound, the new cells that are coming in to try to fill in the area from the bottom up, these cells are very what we call hydrophilic. In other words, they like a really moist environment. Now, alcohol and hydroperoxide may be liquids, but they do not cause a, mo a moist environment. They actually dry out cells. And so what happens is, is that wound healing is actually lowered as a result of using these if you use them on a regular basis. As a first time cleaning, that's perfectly fine, but not for later wound care. Now, you need to cover the whole area with the dry dressing, you have, but first you have to have a moist dressing that's on the actual cells. So the tissue that's trying to heal, you should take a dressing, wet it, and then make it just damp, sort of wring it out some so it's just, so it's wet, but just damp, not, not soaking wet, apply that in and pack that into the area where the wound is, then cover it with a dry dressing. Of course, if these were sterile bandages, that would be awesome. Of course, I know that that may be difficult to do, especially in the later stages of a long-term event. By the way, the Israeli army has developed an excellent bandage that uh, we put in just about all of our kits. It's easy to use, found almost everywhere survival gear is sold, and certainly at a Nurse Amy's store at store.doomandbloom.net, and that is the Israeli battle dressing, currently known in the United States as the emergency bandage. And that not only covers a wound, but can allow you to apply pressure on the bleeding area and allows you, in, in the Six-Day War in 1973, the Israeli uh, Arab-Israeli War, uh, it allowed medics to go from casualty to casualty because it was providing pressure on bleeding areas for them. And in the worst case scenario, it can provi provide, according to the company at least, a 30 pounds worth of pressure as, and can be used as a tourniquet in the same improvised manner that I mentioned with the uh, bandana. You actually take the clip, which is usually used just to secure it once you're done wrapping, and then instead put it under a fold of wrap and then twist, 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 and you wind up getting a pretty significant amount of pressure from that. So it's pretty reasonable to do. So 
a wound, by the way, a wound that has stopped bleeding, can easily start again. It can bleed a little bit as it's healing too because blood vessels do have to grow into that wound. So it may be appropriate to place a splint on an extremity to prevent a great deal of movement, especially if you're going to be transporting this person, you have to be mobile. So that's important. So here's step-by-step step again, put on gloves for, for bleeding control, put on gloves, expose the bleeding wound if you are not under fire. Using ba bandages or other barriers, apply direct pressure to the wound. Now, of course, if bleeding is heavy or if bleeding fails to stop with direct pressure, use a tourniquet. Sometimes a tourniquet will be, it'll be obvious that the tourniquet needs to be the first action that you do uh, and sometimes not not so much but you know if you if you need to use it use it do not be afraid to you may save a life by using it and, uh, hemostatic agents would then be placed on the bleeding vessel wrap it with a tight compression dressing then cover your patient i didn't mention this with the mylar blanket now, these are uh, usually about four and a half by seven feet or so uh, long four four and a half feet wide by seven feet long and they're basically just looks seem like a type of aluminum foil if you if you think about it, but a little more flexible. Cover your patient with the mylar blanket and elevate the legs about two, 12 inches above the level of the heart for extremity wounds, not but not for wounds to the torso. And uh, that mylar blanket is going to prevent heat loss, which is a common thing that occurs with what they call hemorrhagic shock. So that's something that's very important. Remember, when transporting somebody, you might have to immobilize an extremity wound to prevent rebleeding. So you might need some splint material in your medical in your medical kit. So now we've talked a little bit about bleeding wounds and things like that. Sometimes you'll be able to stop the bleeding in the wound. You'll look at it and you'll say, "Hmm, should I close this wound?" And so when a laceration occurs, you have to know that there's always a risk of infection, especially in survival settings. You could imagine that most wounds are going to be dirty. And anytime, even if not obviously dirty, anytime a laceration occurs, our body's natural armor, our skin, is breached. And bacteria, even species that are supposed to be on our skin, you have bacteria that's supposed to be there, uh, that they get a free ticket into the rest of your body. Now. There are microbes that are harmless outside the body, but that they can cause life-threatening infections inside the body. Something that's on the skin may not be appropriate to be in your bone marrow or uh, floating around in your blood vessels. So that's something to know. It only makes common sense that we want to close the cut. If you look at a laceration, you're going to want to close it because you believe it will speed healing and lock out infection. But there's controversy as to whether a wound or not should be closed. When and why should you close or would you choose to close a wound and what method would you use? So lacerations may be closed either by sutures, staples, tapes, or medical superglue such as Dermabond or even industrial superglue. And the reason that I know that is that there are a lot of countries that can't afford the expensive superglues and they have to actually use in. Uh, much less expensive stuff like industrial superglue. Both of these products, by the way, are called are cyanoacrylates. That's the chemical name for them. They just have a different chemical chain on them. One's an octal uh, cyanoacrylate, another's a butyl cyanoacrylate. So 
these countries like Cuba, let's say, that don't have two, two nickels to rub together, have to use things like industrial superglue, close lacerations, and uh, according to studies done there, they apparently work pretty well. They say they're not a, lot, not a big infection rate and things like that. So that's an option you might consider having actually a pack of superglue in your, med it, I, I use gel by the way instead of just the liquid, in your medical kit. After rendering first stage, which includes the controlling of bleeding, removing debris, irrigating the wound, applying the antiseptic, you're gonna have to make that decision as to whether a wound should be closed. And what you have to ask yourself is what are you trying to accomplish by closing this wound? You know, you, you wanna repair the defect in the body's armor, you wanna eliminate something called dead space, which are pockets of air under the skin that might be closed, and you wanna promote healing. And this is a good thing, you get less scarring in a, well in, in a wound that you close, in most cases, as long as it actually heals. But, of course, scarring is not as big an issue in the survival settings than in normal times, but it is a big issue now, and so, it's, you should know that. I mean, it sounds really as if all wounds should be closed, right? But closing a wound that should be left open does a lot more harm than good, can possibly put the victim's life at risk. Now, I use as an example a case of a young lady that was injured some years ago in a zip line accident. She was taken to the local emergency room where a laceration in her thigh had to be looked at, and the doctors chose to close close it with 22 staples, but they didn't close the dead space underneath, left the little pockets of air and bacteria underneath, and unfortunately this particular wound had a very dangerous bacteria in it that caused an infection that spread throughout her body, which required eventually multiple amputations to save her life, and indeed she almost died. So this case is really gives us an important lesson that the decision to close a wound is not automatic, involves a lot of considerations, and the most important consideration is probably whether you're dealing with a clean or a dirty wound. Most wounds you're gonna encounter in an off-grid setting are gonna be dirty. You try to close a dirty wound, uh, you have sequestered bacteria, maybe bits of clothing if it's a gunshot, for example, uh, dirt into your body, and within a short period of time, the wound's gonna become infected. Now, how can you tell if a wound is becoming infected. Well, an infected wound is going to appear red, it's going to appear sort of swollen, it looks sort of shiny, especially around the edges, and it's going to be warm to the touch. Matter of fact, you touch the red area of the infected wound, you compare it to the opposite uh, leg, let's say, if it's the leg wound, and there'll be a big difference in the temperature of the skin. And in the worst cases, what if you leave these pockets of air with bacteria in it, it there's, the body tries to attack it, it forms pus, and you develop an abscess under the wound. And when that happens, you have all this pus accumulating inside, and you eventually may need to open it up again to allow that pus to drain out. And the worse, if you don't, what happens is, is that the infection may spread to the bloodstream that's called a, uh, septicemia and become life-threatening. And these people will have fevers, they'll, they'll begin to lose blood. I mean, they wind up getting very sick over the course of time, and they may indeed die. It might be difficult to fight the urge to close a wound, but leaving the wound open is going to allow you to 
clean the inside frequently enough to really observe the healing process. So it's really fascinating how a wound heals. It forms this material that looks granular, and that's why they call it granulation. It also allows this inflammatory fluid. You do accumulate things that, that fluid that sort of oozes from a wound, even a wound that's healing has a little bit of this, and it allows that to drain out of the body, and that's, that's a good thing. Now, of course, the scar is not going to be as pretty, but it's the safest option in a lot of cases. And you have to realize that uh, this may be the best thing to do. And unfortunately, this takes up a lot of dre wound dressings and bandages, and so you absolutely have to have a lot of supplies. You have to remember that uh, one major hemorrhage, one major wound that you have to uh, allow to heal from the inside out, can take up the majority of your dressings even if you have been accumulating some of them. So it's important to know that you have a lot of materials that you have to get if you're going to be effective in a long-term survival. And certainly if you're gonna be dealing with more than one major injury, you just have to decide whether that's the kind of scenario that you think might actually occur. Now, let's say that you're going to have some suture material, you're gonna have some staples, to close wounds, and we're going to talk about when to do that and when not to in just a second, but if you think about it, if you believe that some kind of long-term event is going to occur that's going to take you off the grid, they're not going to be making that stuff anymore. So whatever you have right now is basically what you're going to have for the duration of the event, whatever it happens to be. And so those materials should be used only when absolutely necessary because not only do you not want to use these more invasive materials, I call them more invasive because they also put holes in people, right? If I stapled you, I'd be putting a couple of holes in you. If I stuck you with a needle, I'd be putting holes in you. And you certainly don't want to do that when you don't need to, but also from a survival standpoint, you don't want to expend material that you're not going to be able to replace, right? So that only makes sense. So let's talk a little bit about what type of wounds that you're going to make a decision to close or to leave open. So these are some reasons. Now, of course, if the wound has been open for a long period of time, and let's say somebody got was on, on a camping trip and they came in with an open wound that's two days old, then even if it looks generally okay, you really shouldn't close it because that wound's been open to air and air has bacteria and it has already been colonized by bacteria most likely. So uh, this is something that would require a major cleaning before you even consider it the possibility of closing it. Uh, some wounds are, are simple, sort of the straight thin cuts on the skin itself, uh, or it could, they, but they could be uh, something called avulsions. It could be areas where flaps of skin are completely torn out, hanging flaps, things like that. And if, and if the e the edges of the skin are so far apart that they can't be stitched together or uh, or stapled together without causing undue pressure, well, that wound should probably be left open. Now, another reason the wound should be left open if it's is if it is if the wound is open, the skin is apart and it gapes apart, even if you're the, the limb, let's say, or, or the part of the body is at rest. So if you have, let's say, the, a laceration on the back of your hand that's gaping open, 
even when you're not doing anything with your hand, making a fist or stretching it out or anything like that, well, that might be a laceration that you want to close. So that's those are just some of the factors that would suggest a closure is appropriate. Uh, also, I would say that very large lacerations, deep lacerations, those are those are some that maybe a reason to close it depending on what is actually cut, what has been cut with this laceration. Uh, if a muscle has been cut, obviously, if you don't put it back together, you're not going to have function in that muscle, right? Because the two ends of the muscle that were cut are not together anymore, and so therefore you're not going to have any ability to use that muscle. So that's something that's important. Now, the, the problem with some deep lacerations is that if it's caused by an animal bite or they're going to be loaded with bacteria and so those might have to be kept open or partially closed in some circumstances with an area open and if those areas are open then you would put something called a drain and a drain is essentially just a uh, piece of material or even a wick of gauze or a wick of uh, latex or or nitrile uh, that co that's called a penrose drain that would allow you to drain this uh, inflammatory fluid and allow you to take a look and see what's going on in there. And that's sometimes very important. Another reason to close a wound is when the wound is located directly over a joint. So if I had a, a cut or a laceration directly over my knee, you can imagine that moving my knee is gonna constantly stress that wound and is gonna prevent it from closing in on itself. So this is something that has to be a factor as well. Now, one thing that you, about closing wounds is that you should feel free to mix different closure areas. I mentioned how you're going to have a limited supply of sutures and staples and things like that. Uh, so you have to, number one, be willing to improvise. Sometimes duct tape can serve as a butterfly dressing, for example, or as a steri-strip type dressing uh, that'll hold skin together. And you know you really would be surprised at what qualifies as medical supplies when the chips are down. So you have to understand that you might only need in a wound, even a relatively large wound, just two or three staples or two or three sutures to hold the skin together close enough so that you can put strips of tape over the remainder of the laceration and hold things together just fine. And that's, uh, we have a couple of techniques that we figured out that we teach in some of our classes. And I think that this is something that's important because not only as a medic in, the, in these situations, you have to be concerned about what's right medically, but you have to also make sure that you're conserving as much material as you possibly can. So these are things that are, are very useful to do. Now, Antibiotics are going to be very important in people with open wounds. You're going to need them in oral form. We've talked about all sorts of different antibiotics on our show in, in previous shows, and you can find a million articles on them in our website. And our website, by the way, I don't know if that I mentioned it, is doomandbloom.net, and we're closing in on a thousand articles, posts, and videos, and podcasts over the course of a number of years, and uh, I hope that you'll head over there, and, and there's a lot of important information there, 
And also, don't forget our book, The Survival Medicine Handbook. It's now in its third edition, 700 pages, and it discusses about 150 different things, and it's all in a mindset where you cannot get that a patient to the hospital or you can't get them to even a doctor. And so if, when you are the final say, where when you are the end of the line when it comes to your family's health because some disaster has taken away modern medicine from you, well, you absolutely need to know how to deal with all of the various issues that can occur. And you also have to, not only with pharmaceuticals, which are great to have in, in quantity, but even in, but in a long-term situation, you have to realize that even those eventually are going to be expended. You have to really know about the use of natural substances like garlic or raw and processed honey, unprocessed honey that may have antibiotic properties as well. And so we'll talk about these in, in future shows. We've talked about them in past shows also. And we'll talk a little bit more about wounds as well in future shows. I really want to thank everybody for listening in today. Uh, we are in Chicago. If you're here for the RK Prepper Show, please come by and say hi. And if you have any questions for me, just contact me at Dr. Bones, Dr. Bones Podcast at AOL.com. Nurse Amy's there too. So if you have a question for her, make sure that you address it to her so she knows that you're asking her, particularly her specifically. Thanks again, and we'll see you next week. Are you worried about how dangerous the world has become? In these days of terrorist attacks, natural disasters, or even a future collapse, you need to be medically prepared to keep your family safe. I'm Amy Alton, ARNP of store.doomandbloom.net, where you'll find an entire line of uniquely designed medical kits and supplies for when help is not on the way. For everything from individual first aid kits to the ultimate family medical bag, go to store.doomandbloom.net today. You'll be glad you did. In these days of terrorists, active shooters, and worse, every school, workplace, and homestead should have the equipment necessary to save a life. The first aid bleeding control module is meant to provide the items you need to stop hemorrhage. It's compact, lightweight, and has easy-to-read waterproof instructions. If every teacher's desk, worker station, and car or truck had one, have no doubt, it would save lives. Available at store.doomandbloom.net. That's store.doomandbloom.net.